Welcome to Scorytime, an under-the-hood look at film scores. We aim to go deeper than anyone has gone before, musically, technically and historically. We are currently looking at Bond scores, but we will be going on to other scores in the future. So, today is all about the music from 1962's Dr. No. Before we start, a quick promo to say please make sure you leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you don't miss future episodes. We aim to release one a month, so stand by for lots of great content. We are on Facebook, check out Scorytime and please come and give the page a like. If you have any questions or talking points for us to cover, do give us a shout on there and we'll try to cover it. Now, shamelessly, I am going to steal a, a great saying from another podcast that I listen to called Pass the Pod. We're a new podcast. We're fresh out the gate. So if you're enjoying what we have to offer, please try and find one other person and pass the pod to them. Recommend us to them and see if we can grow our listeners and make all this work that we're doing a little bit more worthwhile. So let's meet our presenters and the man behind it all, the guy that started the whole thing of Scory Time, Jason Fredericks. Give us an intro. Hi, Warren. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be part of this podcast, which I hope will be the most in-depth look at some of these scores that everybody has uh, ever had the chance to get into. And uh, since I'm just such a huge fan of all of them, as we all are. I am looking forward to this being a good time for everybody. And just a re quick recap, Jason, what's your background in this? Why are you part of the team? <laughs> Apart from okay. the fact that Scory Time is yours, of course. <laughs> well, I'm a film and TV composer and a huge fan of James Bond soundtracks. They're part of the uh, sort of DNA that got me interested in taking images and music and marrying them together and exploring why power of these things kind of latches onto us and keeps us interested to the point where decades and decades later we're still uh, you know interested in looking into it and seeing why it's just timeless and and uh, and a wonderful thing i'm gonna go next uh, my name's warren ringham hopefully at least some of the people listening will know me from cue the music the james bond tribute band and concert we've been around for nearly two decades coming up now and uh, we've been covering Bond songs and cues from the film series. I'm a huge film music fan as well. Uh, I go back all the way to my childhood with my father who was a very well-known and respected professional trumpet player who played on a number of soundtracks including uh, Return of the Jedi and all the Mad Max films and what have you and I followed in his footsteps as a professional musician and here I am very very honoured to be part of this team and uh, contribute hopefully a little bit towards these soundtrack reviews and I'll hand over to our third presenter who's joining us from this episode onwards uh, why don't you introduce yourself it's Gergay Hubei and actually I'm I've been basically watching Bond movies since I was in high school so that was like a good 20 years ago and I started building an interest in the James Bond music and soundtracks in general. I'm mainly known for writing liner notes for about, I don't know, five or six hundred CDs now. I um, do a lot of Italian films, a lot of Morricone, um, most of the Fellini Nino Rota collaborations. And I did work on some of the, the releases of the unofficial Casino Royale 3 to be exact. 
and you know maybe I will get more involved with some of the official releases one day but uh, I'm here to uh, to bring in the historical perspective and uh, you know complete breakdowns of the queues uh, or something along those lines so one thing I think you should just clear up straight away Gerge is that your sort of knowledge on these bond scores goes quite deep I mean tell us exactly what you know because I, I you've actually had a sight of some of the original cues and what have you haven't haven't you well i did work on a bond music book way back when i started working on it the original version included die another day that was the last movie then and i was really set to release it around the time casino royale came out but then they didn't really want any Bond books about the old Bond when Casino Royale came out, you know, not to steal. I'm sure my, my book would have devastated the box office returns of the film. And it's it's something I put on the back burner since then. I've done another book since then, which is actually published. It's called Tone Music. It's about rejected film scores. Another topic that I'm, I'm really interested in. And let's face it, rejected score is kind of fits into the Doctor No. It fits into Doctor No as well. And now I'm in the process of, of, after some great feedback from people who said, you know, we really want to read this book. It, it does sound interesting. It's nothing like has been done before. So I'm kind of revising it as we go along in this um, podcast series. I'm not saying it's I'm going to be able to keep track because there's still, you know, dozens of CDs I have to do every month. But, you know, I, I am rediscovering some of the stuff while going back to what I collected decades ago, all the information. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, gentlemen, let's make a start on this first one then, Dr. No. And this is one heck of a place to start because probably it's up there with one of the most controversial uh, soundtracks in the Bond series anyway, in terms of talking points and, and things to cover and also an awful lot of misinformation which is out there that hopefully we can try and weave our way through and separate fact from fiction and, and also, you know, places where there's maybe more than one side to stories uh, and we can put sort of all the different sides out there and, and let the listener decide, you know, what they take from it but how are we going to tackle this then i mean i think what we're going to do today is look mainly at the score aside from the james bond theme uh, and depending how long this takes we may run into two episodes on this and then we'll move on to the james bond theme for the for that the next episode after that yeah that sounds good to me there's no other way to die so (laughs) <laughs> what about the point about this being one of the most co- controversial ones? I mean, do, do you agree with that? Well, I think it suits the film in the sense that if you watch uh, Dr. No, you'd never seen a James Bond film before, and you were a young person in you know 1962, you probably would have had your mind blown, or whatever the vernacular for getting your mind blown would have been in 1962. And you would have probably loved it because people were you know, very impressed by the change in direction in the leading man and the type of action and the type of, you know, kind of uh, the ambiance of the film. If you watched all the James Bond films and then went back and watched that, that would probably stand out as a film that is the template. So it's got lots of stuff that clearly was going to be developed as the series went on, even in Sean Connery's performance. And, uh, you know, the way it's directed and, and some of the plot details and the way that the females are treated and, you know, the role of the villain 
and the role of the villain's lair. Yeah, you know, all of these things would be developed as the series went on. And in this particular version, they're there, but they're kind of there in an embryonic form. And one of the main ingredients that propels the series forward, especially in the first, you know, maybe two decades or so, uh, is the music and the music which came to define a style that influenced so many other films in that genre and even outside the genre. So that music is here in basically the form of the James Bond theme. And then in the rest of the style of the score, it's not quite there yet, like a lot of the other uh, aspects of it. So in that sense, it kind of works. I mean, I'm more talking in terms of the, the sort of background of the of how the score and the various parts of it came to together. And I mean, Gergai, would you what would you say about this one? I mean, there's 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 sort of three main elements to this score, really, isn't there? There's the 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 sort of Jamaica section uh, or the Jamaica sessions, I should say. There's sort of the British sessions and then there's the James Bond theme and they're three almost completely separate well they are three completely separate things in terms of this film aren't they uh, so even when i was first uh, watching this movie i kind of felt that the music was um, off it, it just doesn't gel like the rest of them and uh, the first movie i saw was goldfinger then moonraker these were the only two that were available in my town for some reason and i picked up dr no i think like like fairly early on but I felt that it was it it was somehow a bit different. Now imagine if somebody were to start watching Bond movies with the Daniel Craig ones, and then he would be like, "Oh well, I wonder where it started from." And then he saw and especially heard Doctor No, and and I think it would be even weirder for them. Okay, before we get going into the real detail, uh, let's just talk through the timeline because I think it's going to be really important as we go through to sort of keep this in mind and refer back to it. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about when things were recorded and where and what have you. So let's just run through things uh, a little bit first of all. So the first thing in terms of the music is that late 1961, bearing in mind that obviously Dr. No, the film was released in 62, um, late 1961, Cubby engages Monty Norman, having worked with him before in some other productions, uh, including a theatre production called Bell. Now, in 1962, January the 14th, we know that Monty flied to Jamaica and that two days later on January the 16th, that's when the shooting began in Jamaica. Now, sometime in that first week, Monty is introduced to Byron Lee, who ran the band The Dragonairs, Ernest Wranglin and Carlos Malcolm. They were all Jamaican musicians. And we know that there was some music recorded in that first week at Kingston's Federal Studios, which must have at least included the cue Jump Up because just a week later, on the 23rd to the 25th of January, we know that the Pussfella nighttime scenes are shot, which included Jump Up being played in the background. Now, we also know around that time that Diana Copeland uh, recorded a demo of Underneath the Mango Tree. And the reason we know that is that Ursula Andress and Sean Connery were using that as a demo, and... Here's Ursula talking about fighting over the record player with, with Sean. We, f we fought a little bit trying to get who is getting the, 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 the what do you call the, the record player, trying to, to learn how to sing this song underneath the mango tree. 
And so he used to take it away from me, then I had to go and steal it back. And he came back into my room because in Jamaica you could go into one no window, so you could go over the balcony. So he was stealing, come and steal my record player, although to that he practiced better than I do. He sings much better than I do. I can't, I can't carry a tune. I can't. And then, of course, we know that on February the 8th, Ursula Andress is coming out the sea scene where she's supposedly singing under the mango tree and we'll talk about that a bit later on we know that that's shot on february the 8th and that monty norman is still there now at some point after that monty norman returns to the uk and around about february the 27th we know that ernest ranglin and carlos malcolm who were mentioned earlier the, the jamaican musicians that were introduced and worked with monty and played and and had some involvement in the recordings out there they sue Eon for more than £1,000, which we'll come again to in more detail later. And then less than a week later, they settled for £200. Skip forward now, we're going to June, and June the 9th is when Monty Norman uh, recollects that he had a meeting between himself and John Barry and Noel Rogers of UA Music to discuss the James Bond theme and orchestrating it. Now, I'm not saying Monty Norman's recollection was that it's June the 9th, but it's important to know that Barry, John Barry, his recollection was it was a week later on June the 16th. And that one thing that's sort of undisputed is that just on the 21st of June, a few days later, that is when the James Bond theme that is used within the film was recorded at CTS Studios. Just a few days after that, we know that on June the 25th and June the 26th, the orchestral cues that were orchestrated by Burt Rhodes were recorded in Denham Film Studios in London. And then a month later, on the 23rd of July, there was another version of the James Bond theme which was recorded at Abbey Road. And this was the version that was released as a single in the charts. And that was part of the deal that John Barry, when he came on board, was allowed to release a version for himself in the charts as a single version that he recorded separately. And that was released in September, just before the film was released on the 5th of October. And the final date of this timeline is the actual release of the soundtrack, which is quite a long time afterwards in 1963. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more generally about the soundtrack before we get into the details, though, because, uh, Jason, last week when we were having a chat, the three of us, about this episode, and, and you made a point which I really agree with, and, you know, Gergai didn't necessarily agree with it, and we'll maybe discuss why, but it, as you said, it's, it's maybe one of the most... Uh, I don't want to paraphrase what you said, so maybe you can put it in your own words, but it was something along the lines of, you know, it's one of the most bizarre soundtracks or unsatisfying soundtracks in the series in that you buy a soundtrack to get the music from the film and actually what you get with Dr. No is nothing like what you get in the film. Yeah, it is, a, it is less representative of the film music than all the other James Bond soundtracks. There are um, a number of cues that aren't in the film, and there are many cues in the film that aren't on the soundtrack. So the overall flavor of Dr. No is is quite, um, I don't know, is schizophrenic a word? Uh, yeah. That you could 
talk about a film score, you know, in relation to it. It's kind of it's kind of schizophrenic, isn't it? It's it's a it's a collection of many different talents to bring what you hear, uh, you know, including Peter Hunt, the editor. You know, all of these people are are influencing the music that's in the film, and that entire experience, however you drink it in, however you uh, enjoy it, is not something that you see. On the soundtrack, and it was also, you know, 1962 was sort of the beginning of the, the sort of auteur period for composers. So as we went through the 60s, you had a lot of scores that were now being driven by the vision of a single person, and they were some contractors, you know, they were hiring other people to uh, to play on it, and you know, they were sometimes choosing where they would record it, but they were in charge. And their vibe and their vision sort of, you know, permeates the entire musical landscape to what you're hearing. So the, the Lalo Schifrin's of the world, and the John Barrys, and the Henry Mancini's, and they all had this. Before that, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s,、uh, there was a studio system in place in、uh, Hollywood, certainly. And so、uh, the idea of, you know, many people coming together with not necessarily comparable vision to produce something. Was more common, and so this score betrays that as well. When you listen to it, you know you've got、uh, Monty Norman, and you've also got the James Bond theme. You've got the funky, I think,、uh, sort of electronic sounds, the sort of futuristic sounds of Daphne Oram. You know, you've got all these things working. Some people would say against each other. Some people would say, well, it's just the score. It's the it's the patchwork quilt that is the Doctor No score. Whereas after this. Regardless of whether it's、uh, Mr. Barry or George Martin or Marvin Hamlisch or anyone, you got their singular、yeah. permeating the score that you're hearing in front of you, right up to anybody. Eric Serra, you know, the vibe、yeah. goes all the way through. And if there's little deviations from it, where a piece of、uh, Paul Buckmaster music comes in and "I Love Me" or or John Altman's "Cue" and "Goldeneye," they are sort of aberrations that. You know, in a short enough time, return to the sound of the score.、Yeah. This Doctor No doesn't have that. Doctor No does kind of move around quite a bit. Yeah, it's a melting pot of all sorts, whereas the others get a bit more focused, don't they?、Uh, I just like to add this quick aside that being lied to by the soundtrack was actually the norm, not an exception in the 1960s. Most of the soundtracks released for Hollywood productions were completely re-recorded because of reuse fee reasons. None of the music you had on the soundtrack was actually in the film. And if you think of somebody like Harry Mancini,、uh, most of his soundtracks also had this tendency that the source music was overrepresented, as opposed to the actual dramatic underscore. So, in in that respect, the fact that Doctor No is using at least some of the recordings featured in the film makes it a bit more honest than many of the contemporary Hollywood soundtracks. A Henry Mancini re-recorded soundtrack still sounds a lot like. Henry Mancini. Whereas the things that I, I take away from Doctor No, having watched the film and listened to it, I don't hear on the soundtrack. Like the very spirit of it doesn't seem to be represented. But yeah, you have a good point. Well, we got eighteen tracks on the soundtrack, and only eight of them actually appear in the film. I mean, when did this soundtrack get released, Gergai? It's 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 nineteen sixty three, isn't it? Yes, they didn't expect the film to be this big. And the British soundtrack release industry was really in its infancy. They they rarely release soundtracks for purely British pictures, and when they did, usually it was some sort of 
co-production. Uh, so this whole soundtrack was assembled by the time everyone working on the picture has moved on. So it also has this kind of other invisible hand in selecting and picking and naming the tracks because it wasn't anybody directly associated with the film. It was just United Artists just calling whatever tapes they had access to and just trying to make sense of it, creating a kind of, uh, how should I put it, like a fake impression of the score. With, uh, uh, and it's not just uh, what is on the score, but how it's named, how it's presented, what it pretends to be when it's clearly not that. And Monty Norman was fuming about it, reading in John Birmingham's book, The Music of Bond. He, he sort of says, words to the effect of, I mean, he was absolutely livid about it. He wasn't consulted about what music was used. He was very unhappy that none of his orchestral music, the Burt Rhodes orchestration stuff, was in there. And he wasn't consulted on what anything was called, which is a real sort of mishmash of names and there's more than one track on there called the James Bond theme. And I think probably because they, what they were trying to do was identify that that was possibly a version that was in the sort of earlier days of filming, one that was maybe being earmarked to be the James Bond theme. But it's quite confusing. I mean, there's Doctor No's fantasy, Doctor No's theme, both of which are not used. And the biggest mystery of all, a song called Audio Bongo <laughs> with no bongo. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. If you bought that off the strength of of reading the titles of the tracks and then you got it home, you'd hear no bongo. You'd be massively disappointed. Absolutely bizarre as well, that track, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's a great name for the spirit of the track because the track is, yeah, it's a bizarre track and it's got a great name that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Audio bongo, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let's let's start by having a look at the... Uh, we'll call them the Jamaica recordings. The, the basically all the stuff that's used on the soundtrack and and that sort of Jamaican sounding music, which for a lot of the time is is really kind of used as source music in the film or certainly setting the scene of Jamaica. And you, you, I know Jason, you were saying when we were talking about this, you know, pre-recording that, that it's a very sort of songwriter sounding approach and and i very much understood what you meant with that but but expand on that for the listeners what your thinking behind that was yeah sure you do have the songwritery kind of material and then you have the very composery material there isn't really a hybrid in dr no there isn't a fusion of the two it does seem to be one or the other it switches in a, in a very abrupt way between the two styles and i think Potentially, that's one of the things that uh, make this score kind of uh, schizophrenic the way it is. But yeah, uh, Monty's music, like even if you didn't know that Monty Norman was a songwriter, uh, you'd probably figure it out by listening to a lot of this material, particularly the things that are, uh, that are in Jamaica. There's a certain kind of uh, melodic, you know, hummability about what he's done. And if you listen to, like, underneath the mango tree, you can hear the... Uh, And then uh, there's a song called Jump Up, which goes. Which is, you know, you can hear the same vibe. Yeah, very true. And, uh, and there's also a piece of music on the soundtrack called Love at Last, which uh, appears in the film briefly, that, uh, that you can also hear goes. Uh,
very singable. Yeah, it's the stuff that he writes in this. It's all very, uh, and I'm, the word I'm going to use is they're they're all little ditties, aren't they? That they, yeah. you know, he's great actually at, at writing little ditties. Uh, well, there's also a sort of a pop folk kind of quality to Monty's music as well. Like in his music, there 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 isn't any sort of like jazz chords. There aren't any funky kind of, you know, everything is very straight. You don't hear like a. There's none of that going on. It is very, you know, it's very straight ahead. And, and so it's very easy on the ear and it's and it's very pleasant. And maybe I'm being unfair on Monty Norman, but to me, it kind of lacks the intellectual depth of a, you know, a real seasoned film composer who really knows chords and the mechanics of chords and really knows how to layer up. You, you get a very different sound from someone that, doesn't really read and write music that like Monty doesn't and and actually just sits at a, a piano or a guitar and and hums a tune and and writes a a backing to it and th- that's not a criticism it has its place in music you know i mean that's kind of the approach that Paul McCartney had to writing songs and wrote some of the greatest songs ever but or Irving Berlin yeah yeah but they but they don't have that sort of approach to it the way that say for example john barry does where he's schooled in understanding how chords work with each other and what chords make something sound so dark and mysterious the way that he goes on to use chords uh, later on uh, as well and so you, when you're just an out and out kind of songwriter it does end up sounding quite simple in a in a pleasant way as you say you weren't aware of the series that was going to go forward at this Mm. point right so we are hearing the music that was created out of the inspiration of a really fun and lovely and uh, you know nourishing trip to jamaica yes yeah like that that was where this music came from initially yeah and that's what it was it was created then so there's that great quote from uh mr burlingame's book the music of james bond where one of the producers said something to monty like you know we've got plans for a couple of films and tv series out of this yeah like that was as far as they were looking so yeah yeah establishing this character as a pop culture icon of the second half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century wasn't necessarily on the cards at that point. So you are just hearing a travelogue kind of approach to scoring that section of the film, which uh, lots of films did at the time. As soon as you went to somewhere exotic to people who lived in the quote-unquote West, the music had to reflect that. And so it sort of, uh, it achieves that for sure. So I think uh, the first thing I'd like to point out is that what we have just said so far is that uh, Monty Norman is not a real film composer. He's more like a musical composer. I think he would be the first to admit that. In fact, when you look at the documentary where he's speaking about the on one of the DVDs, he's, uh, I, it feels like he's quite proud of the fact that he achieved so much with so little technical knowledge mm. actually that he's he's kind of he and you know he's kind of got lucky and nothing wrong with that and i just just think about how bizarre it is that they basically approach this film like a musical like they were they were working from the script 
and they were like writing songs for the characters, like mm-hmm. knowing that the, the characters would not sing it, of course, but just like having the the Kingston Calypso song, the Three Blind Mice, having a, a love song for the girl, having the party song, which is about basically the theme of the island, if you think about it. It's just such a bizarre idea that it, it started from there and that so much of that could be salvaged actually that yeah. uh, they even use the vocal performances that's quite interesting i think yeah exactly they didn't necessarily approach the film like there was a plan of how to do it so monty was being creative in uh, jamaica and that's a lot of what that what we're talking about i think that material pretty much All of it is set in one place in Jamaica, whereas all the other films have, as we go on, a multitude of different places. And so the the music in this film, I think, works really well in that it is set in Jamaica and it does have that Jamaican feel for a lot of it. The songs and the Jamaican flavoured stuff in here works really well for the film. It's the other stuff that I don't actually like as much the orchestral stuff that we'll come on to but this stuff actually does work really well for the setting of the film um, just one thing about the the single location thing is that actually with the exception of the smuggling films like goldfinger and diamonds are forever where the plot is basically following the smuggling like most of the first half of the bond canon is is very one location, or one location is clearly above the others. Like, uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service has Switzerland, You Only Twice has Japan, From Russia with Love has Istanbul. So it actually starts, maybe we end the Man with the Golden Gun, although it takes place in several different countries, it's it's pretty much just Southeast Asia. And since The Spy Who Loved Me, we have the globe-trotting bond. Like, you know, you have to visit at least three continents or your license is revoked or something. So, But the early films do have a bigger focus on exploiting a single location, and this does show in the music that the composer has to get involved to at least some degree with the location music, as opposed to the globe-trotting bonds, where, let's say, in, in The Spy Who Loved Me, you have a few comedic cues and then you know a bunch of disco tracks uh, depending on where you're skiing or or swimming with your car so the having a strong uh, local color in your music is actually pretty trendsetting for at least the first part of the series that's true and I, and now i'm looking back and thinking you know you're spot on but i suppose in my head i'm thinking you're going almost straight away into jamaica from the start of the film I mean, in all the other films, there are at least scenes in other countries that last a bit longer than really just M's office and a little bit of a, you know, opening a couple of bits in Doctor No. And then really we're in Jamaica for the vast majority of it. And it also is kind of all, you know, around the locale of the beach and and you know, in the bar by the beach and on the island. I think I think what is really different about this one is the fact that local artists are involved. That part is kind of unique. So yeah. in, in You Only Live Twice, you don't have Japanese musicians or anything True. like that. So I think the even just seeing the Byron Lee band on screen just gives you a, a shot of authenticity that the other ones clearly don't have. But I mean, here's a point that, Jason and I made last week and I think it's definitely worth raising for our listeners is that you know we we sort of came to this by just chatting and we were saying that the different approach in this film is that the scoring approach is to score the scene and score the setting rather than the character and what the character is doing within the setting with the exception of obviously the use of the James Bond theme where it really is you know when it's used it really is used to 
you know, score what James Bond is doing. Whereas all the others, I think he's actually, a lot of the time, is really setting the environment from which James Bond is in. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And we were mentioning that. And, and also, I think, again, the idea that we can keep coming back to, if we want, that Dr. No was the template. So, you know, it does spend a lot of time in Jamaica, but that was also really, you know, for people who, who uh, before the deregulation of the airline industry and that, you know, a lot of people didn't get on planes and fly to exotic locations yeah. for a holiday and stuff. So to jump from the casino to Jamaica was a glimpse of a life that a lot of people would probably aspire to have, but didn't have a, a hope of actually enjoying. So it worked on that level. And then once that took off and the budgets expanded, you know, they were able to inject a certain amount of globe trotteriness to it because they could afford to and because they had set the standard with dr no and promotion with love and they had to get in you know they had to impress people now they had to get bigger and bigger and bigger which they managed to do almost exponentially till about 1969 you know to show people with most like roger moore always used to say that the money was on the screen right they had to yeah. put that money on the screen where people really felt like they were on holiday a little bit well we're going to sort of move on in general terms, talk about the London traditional orchestral sounds in, in a minute. But I wanted to bring up this article that came in sort of public awareness just after Sean Connery passed away. And it's a book that was written by Heather Augustine called Operation Jump Up, Jamaica's Campaign for a National Sound. And chapter two of that book is entitled 007 is Here, Sir. And there's a a very interesting section of this book that talks about the score that was recorded out there and some, you know, controversy that was around that. Because in actual fact, there was a, a lawsuit brought against Eon, brought by Carlos Malcolm, uh, and he sued basically to to say that uh, his work had been stolen by Monty Norman and Eon and he hadn't had been properly paid for it. And there was a settlement made, which I think he believed, I believe he got about £200 and that was the end of it. And it's certainly very controversial, yet more controversy around this uh, score that's uh, new. And I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to read out uh, an excerpt from the book. Now, please bear in mind, I've taken a few bits out of the full version because it's sort of exposition that you probably don't really need to know for this. However, if you want to read the whole thing, we can put the link on Facebook and it is out there to be read. And obviously you can get the book, of course, as I've already mentioned. But here we go. OK, so the key people that you're going to need to remember in this, you've got Chris Blackwell, who was, of course, the location scout, production assistant and later the Island Records founder, who was the one who... Um, connected Monty Norman with the other characters in this story. There's Byron Lee, who, of course, uh, was the leader of the band, the Dragonairs. And then there's Ernest Wranglin, who was a guitarist of, of great note, who worked on some of the tracks. And Carlos Malcolm, who was a trombonist and percussionist within the band as well. OK, here we go. So Blackwell recommended that popular band leader Byron Lee and his band members be cast to play on film in the Calypso scene at Pussfella's Club. The character of Pussfella was played by Lester Prendergast, who owned the Glass Bucket Club. Byron Lee's manager, Ronnie Nasrallah, says that it was he who put Blackwell in contact with Byron Lee. Nasrallah says, They came down to Jamaica and asked me if I could help with getting a cast for the nightclub scene. 
so I auditioned different artists for the nightclub scene, including Bob Marley and the Wailers. I turned down Bob Marley and picked Byron to perform in the nightclub scene and organised the different dance steps and the music and the dancers in front of the bandstand. When asked why he didn't choose Marley, Nazarella states, he was very untidy and I didn't think people wanted that. No shoes and he smelled bad and he was just untidy. Byron Lee says that being cast in the movie was an essential part of the band's growth in these fertile years and it provided accessibility for their future endeavours in the United States two years later. In an interview with Roy Black in the Jamaica Gleaner, April 22nd, 2012, Byron Lee said, In 1960, along came the producers for the first James Bond movie, Dr. No, part of which was filmed in Jamaica. They paid us to play our music in the movie. So that's where we got a head start from. After that, we became very much in demand and fully professional. But at the time, no one could have foreseen that the film would become so iconic and the band would have received such a boost. In the Jamaica Gleaner, March 26, 2006, Lee states, The James Bond film and the producers came down here on a hope and a prayer. It was like a pilot. They had no idea that it would become the biggest film series the world has ever seen. I was fortunate enough to have had a role when the band appeared at Morgan's Harbour. According to Matthew Parker in his book Goldeneye, where Bond was born, Byron Lee himself is seen in the film playing bass guitar in Jump Up. Ernest Wranglin provided extra guitar for the final sound, and in addition to appearing in the film, Byron Lee and the Dragonairs also performed on the Doctor No soundtrack. The song Jump Up appeared in the film, and the soundtrack also featured Kingston Calypso, which was Three Blind Mice of course, and Under the Mango Tree. Band leader Carlos Malcolm was also involved in music for Dr. No, though his experience was not as positive as Lee and his bandmates. Malcolm was a skilled musician and composer who served as a musical director at Jamaica Broadcasting Company along with Sonny Bradshaw in 1958. But Malcolm was not to perform on film for Dr. No and instead was involved in the film's music. Both Carlos Malcolm and Ernest Wranglin provided music for the film, but were never compensated properly for their compositions, resulting in a lawsuit against the film company Eon Productions. The Daily Gleaner on February 27, 1962, featured the front page headline £1,064 writ on Dr. No Producers. The story said the writ was filed on behalf of Carlos Malcolm, music teacher and instrumentalist, and Ernest Wranglin, guitarist. Mr. Malcolm claims that he was engaged to compose and write musical scores and supervise recordings, whilst Mr. Wranglin claims he was engaged to look after the arrangements. Decades later, at the Institute of Jamaica, Malcolm appeared for an event at which he told the audience, After Dr. No came out, it took me two years to watch the movie. The first time it came out, I cried like a baby. The man left with my scores. These were my original scores. Malcolm said he had written 53 scores for the film. This was where I made my big mistake. I signed my life away. Once you've signed a general release, that's it. I got paid as hired. If you didn't sign it, you would get paid every time the movie plays. After that, I went out and I copywrote everything I wrote. That's the greatest lesson of my life, he says. 
Carlos Malcolm recalls the details of the legal debacle and the Dr. No soundtrack in his seminal book, Carlos Malcolm, A Professional History of Post-War Jamaican Music, New Orleans Jazz, Blues to Reggae. He writes, Early in 1961, Eon Productions of London, England, came to Jamaica to film the first James Bond movie, Dr. No. My friend and counsel... Anthony Spaulding informed me that he had received a call from the Eon Productions field office inquiring of my whereabouts. Apparently, I was being tracked for a meeting with the musical director of Eon Productions, Monty Norman. His job was to identify and arrange for original tropical background music created in Jamaica. Malcolm says that he met with Monty Norman, who showed him musical notation of the famous James Bond theme that he had freshly penned. Malcolm told Norman, I like the melody, especially the leading note to tonic, followed by fifth to flatten fifth. That is very mysterious and dramatic. Norman, apparently, not only liked the comment, but saw that Malcolm was an adept musician. So Malcolm advised Norman on the bass line and worked long hours discussing scenarios and scene durations where tropical sounding music fills would be suitable. The scene durations were from 7 seconds to 1 minute. I scored 53 pages of musical fills, Malcolm states. Norman continued to have a friendship with Malcolm until one day at Malcolm's house during a barbecue when Norman absconded with Malcolm's musical scores. Malcolm recalls the after-dinner conversation. We talked about the Doctor No movie all night. As it got late and my guests began to depart, Monty indicated he also wanted to leave. I was his means of transportation. After everyone had left, Monty said, Carlos, I'd like to borrow your musical scores overnight to double-check the time sequences I originally gave you against recent changes we've made in the script. I'll notate the changes on the musical scores. They're on my desk with a rubber band around them, I replied. With the rolled musical scores under his arm, we walked out to my car. I drove Monty back to his hotel at about 2am. He was now staying at the Morgan's Harbour Hotel in Port Royal. At 7am, I was back at the hotel to get Monty. We were facing another hectic day of recording, or so I thought. As I approached his room, I heard the hum of a vacuum cleaner. When I got to the open door, there were two chambermaids cleaning the room. Thinking that Monty had probably been transferred to another room, I went to the front desk and asked for Mr Norman's room number. The front office clerk looked at her book and said, Monty Norman, he left on the flight to London at 4.30 this morning, sir. Malcolm was physically sick at the news. He contacted his attorneys, Spaulding and Patterson, who advised him to get out of town until I was contacted to come back. During this time, the government had ordered a hold on all equipment involved in the production. When Malcolm returned, he was told to sign for a cheque by Eon Productions lawyers, just enough to pay the musicians in the recordings. But the signature was more than just a cheque release. Unbeknownst to Malcolm, the signature was also one for general lease. I had completely signed away my rights to any further litigation and the matter was now closed, Malcolm said. He was never to receive any royalties. The experience of Dr. No was devastating for Carlos Malcolm. I refused to attend the premiere of Dr. No when the movie came to Jamaica. I just could not, although I wanted to. 
Several months later, when I finally summoned the courage to see the movie, I sobbed unconsolably for days. Some of the music, rearranged and played by the London Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, were my original ideas. I had tried to find a logical explanation for Monty's blatant act. He had planned to take my property, even as he looked me in the eye and accepted my kindness and hospitality with a smile. Malcolm describes Norman as a thief in the night. He says, I never heard from Monty Norman afterwards, proving that his action was not an error. In this life, the rich may not hesitate to rob the poor. Now, it has to be said, these are all allegations in the book, and they are not our allegations. They are Carlos Malcolm's, which are in print and in the public domain. I think it's also important to note that whilst there was a lawsuit brought against Eon with regards to this, or we think it was regards to this, it, it was certainly at the same time and involved those people, um, it's important to note that you know all parties did settle out of court and a payment was made. So there's a couple of points from that that we really do need to talk about because... You know, there's there's some things that that don't really add up in this article. So, you know, you're gonna listeners gonna have to sort of draw their own opinion as to whether they believe it's completely real, partly real, or not real at all, or you know, and didn't happen at all. The first thing that is the obvious one that I know, Gergai, when this cropped up on Facebook, you jumped straight in and said, "Doesn't it doesn't add up?" Is the the fact that he says that he met with Monty Norman and who showed him the musical notation of the famous James Bond theme that he had freshly penned. Malcolm told Norman, "I like the melody, especially the leading note to tonic, followed by fifth to flattened fifth. It's very mysterious and dramatic." Well, Gergai, we know that that isn't possible, don't we? Yes, I think there is, uh, you know, as when I was working on my book Tone Music, which discussed the very delicate subject of rejected film scores, which is even a bigger minefield than Dr. No, I would say, I often come up with this idea that people kind of misremember. So I, I often heard and had to cut stories that, that clearly, factually couldn't have been to you. You know, you weren't there. This happened later. You didn't even know that person then. And I do think there is this kind of self-insertion here that basically inserts himself into, into history that I was there at the birth of the James Bond thing when logistically it couldn't have been possible. Maybe he saw something that now he thinks was the James Bond theme, but it couldn't have been the famous part, basically. Well, and the reason for that, Gergai, is the fact that this would have happened, this meeting would have happened in January, and we know that the, the James Bond theme wasn't even written until June when Monty Norman presented part of his theme, this uh, good sign, bad sign, to John Barry to arrange into the James Bond theme. So the times just don't work, do they? This was, at this stage... Monty Norman was still thinking about something else for the James Bond theme. Yes, and we we did kind of discuss whether maybe he was thinking of that the James Bond theme from the soundtrack, with mm. the, which is basically this Doctor Knows Fantasy, Doctors, you know, that kind of secondary theme that doesn't really appear in the film at all. 
musical description maybe he was thinking of that uh, because there is a chance that Monty Norman did call that thing the James Bond theme back then it just wasn't the the one that we now know as the James Bond theme that's that's my best guess about how how I'm not saying he's lying I just I just say that he's he believes he's true and I think that's how both sides can be thrown away. Also, kind of corroborates that is what Warren might be ready to say right now too. Is that he the uh, leading tone? Is it rising up? Leading note to the tonic and the yeah. fifth to the flat and fifth. Yeah, I was going yeah. to ask you that. That doesn't add up either, does it, Jason? Well, no. That that uh, that sounds like this. Yeah. Where you could try to have as much fun as you want with that. It just it's not in there anywhere really whatever no. that is talking about so it may be it, it is also possible that there's a piece of music called the James Bond theme that he heard that we've never heard true that might have had a completely different piece of music that he played for him at the time that was called that he called the James Bond theme but turned out to not even be one of the items on the soundtrack with the name or, or the things that, that Mr. Norman later on referred to as the, you know, the genesis of the theme and everything. Maybe there was a completely different one. that he and, and I have to also just cover this off completely and say, I've looked at the other pieces of music on the album that could possibly be the ones that he might be talking about. And none of those fit that description musically or even close. Though, as you say, maybe it's a piece that wasn't on the album. Maybe it's a piece that, you know, Monty Norman was working on, but it never made it past that stage. And, you know, years, decades down the road, you know, Carlos Malcolm might be just thinking back and going, well, actually, that's what I heard. But it, but it wasn't what he heard. He heard, you know, he was looking at something else that just had James Bond theme written on it. But there's a couple other things as well that I found interesting that I wanted to talk about. He said that he wrote 53 scores for the film. But then he but he also actually does go on to say that he wrote 53 pages of musical fills. The 53 scores, Gurgai, sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, uh, you know, let's not forget that neither Monty Norman nor Carlos Malcolm were film composers to the, to the degree they don't even know the correct terminology. So maybe he's thinking of like score, like sheets of paper, mm. like like. Or he think of score, scores as like cues, or, or I don't know. The fifty three is just a ridiculously large number, whichever definition we look at. Because uh, I'm not sure the whole Doctor No score would make fifty three pages in its current incarnation. So with all the repetition there. It, and uh, the fact that he mentions that they just wrote all the score just from the script, it's like, that, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. You don't you don't write a complete film score without a single visual, unless you do some kind of really, you know, really cool indie art house flick and you have the total confidence of the director. Blockbuster scores are not written from the scripts. So uh, maybe it was just a lot of uh, work put down for nothing. So, and even if if what is, is said is true, I'm not sure how much of this could be used or, or resolved in any way. So, I mean, nah. here's the other thing. You know, we know Monty Norman flew out on the 14th of January. We know shooting started on the 16th of January. We know things were being recorded that week. And we know that Monty Norman came back sometime in February. I mean, let's say that he was there for a month. 
th- this guy this guy would have had to if he say if he meant 53 pieces he'd have been writing you know one and a half pieces every single day for 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 Monty Norman to then to then steal i don't know like everything there's one side the other side and then what really happened but it's interesting to know and i think that we won't cast any sort of final judgment on that but you know we've presented what carlos malcolm said it was definitely the case that he sued eon and it's definitely the case that eon settled and paid a fee in john burlingham's books was for 200 pounds so there was definitely something that he wasn't happy with and there was definitely something that eon felt that they needed to compensate him over so we'll leave that up to people listening to decide on that but the Let's move on then to these London sessions, because this is also a little bit interesting for me, you know, a little bit possibly controversial, because what I find really interesting is that we know that Monty Norman wasn't experienced in in writing music and, and certainly orchestral cues and, and um, scores for films. We've already established that, and he's probably more experienced in writing songs. And he brought in... Bert Rose is someone that he worked with a lot. And as you said earlier, Jason, he wrote... Well, the most, the most famous thing that shows up when people uh, think of his name is the theme to The Good Life. Right, yeah. Which is catchy and, uh, you know, well-orchestrated. He also was uh, he was a musical director. Uh, he worked with Monty on other things. So they had a working relationship already by the time they had gotten to Dr. No. And, uh, and he also, uh, yeah, musical director on The Benny Hill Show. So, yeah, he worked a lot. Here's the interesting thing. Monty Norman received a fee of £500 for his work on Dr. No. And he split his fee 50-50 with Burt Rhodes and insisted that Burt Rhodes got uh, credit in the opening credits alongside him, uh, Monty Norman, in those credits. Now, read into that what you will (laughs) out there. But I'm going to just sort of serve this up and let's discuss it. How much did Burt Rose do on these particular sessions? Because it seems to me that he must have had a very large input into these particular cues. So I think the best way to approach it is to look at the Jamaica sessions and see how much of it shows up in the orchestral sessions. And if you look at most of the cues, basically, you can hear the underneath the mango tree stuff at the end before it trails off into that uh, that glorious fanfare for the final sequence with the boat. And certainly the James Bond theme is there for when Bond is killing the guard or when he's uh, punching up Mr. Jones. Uh, but otherwise, Bert Rhodes mostly really does his own thing. There, there's one more, the Island Speaks does appear in the Jamaica session and the London session as well. But otherwise, there is very little thematic cohesion between the two scores. Just basically as much as you can say that the same, the people who worked on the orchestra session were aware and had access to the Jamaican material. But otherwise, it's really almost self-contained apart from a few overlaps of thematic continuity. I mean, Jason, what about the compositional approach? Because these two sessions, they really do have a very different compositional approach, don't they? In the harmony and, you know, everything about the way they sound. Yeah, once again, it's hard to uh, to talk too much without referring to uh, Mr. John Berlingame's book, The Music of James Bond. But it does say that Mr. Norman kind of acknowledges that he comes from a melodic sort of songwritery background, but felt 
that he was up to the challenge of coming up with the thematic material for the, you know, what would become the London sessions, which were then handed over to Burt Rhodes or collaborated with Burt Rhodes to turn into the music that we've heard. So it's hard to say exactly what each person's input was, but it is certain that the two styles are very, very different. Now, whether they got to the parts of the film what they were going to score uh, completely traditionally and just thought, well, we'll just, we won't even try to go down a melodic route. We'll go down a very traditional film scorey route or whether it was just an accident that, you know, they had completely forgotten everything they had thought we, we wanted to treat all the Jamaican music like source music almost. And now it's almost like we're starting over. Mm. It would be great to, if it was possible to interview people from that angle and I'd be really interested to find out what the actual mindset was that produced this pretty dramatic shift, as Gurgai says, between the sing-songy, this the songwritery, the the pleasant, hummable, you know, melodic music of the first half of the movie, and then the underscore, which actually takes on a completely different character, and actually is a really good example of film scoring before the 1960s. It's it's kind of a late example on of how film music worked. And it actually shares a lot in, uh, in uh, common with monster movies, where the actual visual impact is covered with music that amplifies and reflects what you're visually seeing. It doesn't take a psychological approach, which film music started to do more and more and more from the 60s onward. So just, uh, you know, just to give a, a moniker to this kind of approach, this is what I think it was Terence Young. Uh, I, I don't know if it was Terence Young or Peter Hunt who referred to this music as, as mining disaster music. You know, the mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you can play the, the little excerpt of that when the, the island is blowing up, it, it, it pretty much exemplifies that. So... Uh, it's just very obvious, you know, goes for big dramatic movements, big dramatic effects, and, uh, you know, it's, it's goofy fun, but definitely, definitely a far cry from, from, from even, even the shallowest later Bond scores, this is just, uh, very, very much scoring the surface, really. Well, I, look, as Jason's saying, you know, this is very much a score that's just, it's not breaking new boundary it is just a score that's very to me it just sounds like a a made for tv kind of score and it's you know it's almost like a silent film Uh, we we were saying this last week it's uh, when we were talking about it you know it was almost like a silent film score isn't it in the history of film music dr no is is an interesting it occupies an interesting space in time because from the early 1930s through the 40s and the 50s Film music was supposed to amplify the action, and in monster films particularly, there were a lot of uh, gestures, musical gestures, that it was decided pretty early on worked really well. And Dr. No makes use of these exclusively. If you closed your eyes and, and listened to some of the cues, you wouldn't be incorrect in thinking that it might have been closer to something like Creature from the Black Lagoon or something like that when it comes to underscore, because that is the kind of uh, musical approach that it takes. The other day I was listening to the King Kong score.
This approach, which doesn't appear as much in films from the 1960s onward, centers around a couple of different ideas. And one of them is the idea of the semitone. So if you have something that moves in semitones... That creates tension almost literally, because mm. you're actually rising. And if you take an idea and you play it, and then you raise it up a semitone, and then you raise it up another semitone, that is what you hear in uh, Max Steiner's score for King Kong, which is from 1933. And this you can hear throughout the 40s and the 50s in the sort of what can be loosely called like the monster genre, you know, Tarantula and Creature from the Black Lagoon. And, you know, some sci-fi films have done this too. It's a great effect when you want to be uh, excited. And Dr. No, there's uh, many cues. And so in Dr. No, you have uh, the same ideas that get played. There's you hear. And then. You know, that idea of something just rising and rising and rising. And uh, there's lots of uh, parts of the score that do that. that, that oh, there is really is. I mean, now you point it out as well. I mean, I bet everybody listening is like, yeah, you, you know, you, you hear it. Yes, the same thing that you hear in King Kong in 1933, you're hearing in Dr. No. You're hearing the, uh, okay, let me try to figure this one out. You know, you hear all of that, and, and 
it's just it goes on and on and on. The the climax of Doctor No, the music with the tarantula of Doctor No, like it's all built. Uh, one of the earliest score appearances of the uh, James Bond theme motif in the score, I think, takes place. Well, I won't say, but I think it takes place when. Uh, when they're in the car with the driver with Jones yeah that's the first one which is not the not the thing not the film recording is the first one and it, it comes just before the part you play that's what I wanted to add it just comes before the part yeah and that in itself go you get that so you get that idea one semitone mm. and you get another Rising semitones again. Yeah. This this monstery device is is the main sort of idea of building tension and creating uh, excitement in the in Doctor No, and it is like a, a monster movie sort of effect. And by the early 1960s, people were were using this as much anymore. This was something that was slightly retro in 1962 except for sort of like more kind of uh i don't know i want to get a better word than monster but you know this was something that was slightly retro for 1962 it still completely works and it's a completely legitimate way to score a film and it does create tension you know you the the scene with the tarantula is really tense and the scene at the end where i guess you could say it's the first time we've seen a James Bond villain's lair being destroyed, you're hearing something that reflects what you're actually seeing, which is an actual disaster, isn't it? You're seeing yeah. something that is like blowing it's up. It's a mining disaster. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, and, and it works in that, it completely works in that yeah. level. I can't say anything against it, except for the fact that it represents a direction that the later 60s and the rest of the James Bond film series chose not to follow. That was not something that ended up being seen as another way to create atmosphere and tension and all of these other all these other things. Well, let me ask you this then, because it's a really interesting point, and I'm trying to frame this question without it sounding like I'm putting the method, the compositional approach down. But from my, I don't have the compositional experience you do, but even in my sort of introductory, you know, stuff that I've done in various courses I've done over the years as part of musical degrees and everything else, the approach that you're describing is fairly rudimentary, almost compositional 101 approach. And as you say, it's a perfectly legitimate approach. But why is it moved on from that approach by the 60s and then going forward really does move away from it? Is it that composition for film moves on and people become more advanced in the way they're writing for film? Or is it that us as the listener and the audience goer at the time starts to expect more from the score? It's like one of those things where you sort of educated your audience to the point where actually they're now ready to absorb a different and more advanced score than that. I mean, I don't know what what's the reason that it moves on. Which is it one of those, or is it just something else and just fashions uh, of music? I think it's a little of both, really. There was a writer named Sophia Lissa. She was a uh, a musicologist, and uh, she wrote what is referred to by a lot of people as the first sort of analysis of the main functions of film music. And she wrote this in uh, I think 1959. And she talks about having watched films for a few decades. What does film music have to do? And she says, you know, one of the things that film music has to do is emphasize movement. 
And it also has to emphasize like real sounds. So when it's raining, it has to sound like it's rain music or windy or footsteps or, you know, anything like that. And as people have watched films for decades, it probably becomes less important to an audience to see these things. Mm. And in the 60s, certainly, it, it, this began in the 1950s, but in, in the 1960s, the idea of reflecting the sort of psychological states of characters in a more subtle way, you know, perhaps with orchestration or with less emphasis of movement and sounds and physical visual representation through music, it, it became less important to do that. And so that could just be, you know, it, with each generation, you, you come up with different ideas and you see something for a long time and you think, well, I'm going to do it differently. And John Barry certainly was somebody who believed in the slightly more psychological approach to what was going on on the screen. You didn't have to mimic everything with music. Um, I would introduce these um, two phrases that if you collect him scores, you know the phrases, the golden age and the silver age of film music, which is a bit of a marketing term, really, because it tells you what to expect. Uh, there is no strict chronological demarcation line. Golden age is the, the Max Steiner school of, uh, you know, big orchestral, uh, epic scores with, with lots of Hollywood musicians. And the Silver Age is stuff like uh, John Berry, Emma Bernstein, uh, or very often with uh, very much uh, pop sensibilities. And uh, apart from all these uh, approaches in what kind of orchestra you use, the, the, one of the big differences is that uh, after 1958, the Hollywood musician strike, uh, composers were, were free to assemble what kind of orchestra they wanted to use. They weren't forced by the studios to use their contract orchestras because those things didn't exist anymore. They weren't forced to do only big uh, symphonic music. But the big difference, I think, why Dr. Noise is basically is, is between these two halves is because half of it is Golden Age, half of it is Silver Age. The Jamaica stuff is clearly Silver Age music. And the difference here, I think, the, where I was going with this, the big difference between Golden Age and Silver Age is that in Silver Age, the music was expected to work without the film as marketing material, as hit songs, as, as an additional tool. In the golden age, it, it did happen. You know, Miklos Roja recorded Jungle Book. It was a nice surprise, a nice bonus, but not the goal. Mm. By the time this, this Silver Age uh, rolled around, it was expected to have hit songs. It was expected that at least part of the music has to be commercially exploited outside the film as well, either in the radio or in the form of soundtrack albums. And I think uh, the the United Artists only realized this after the film became a big hit, that one half of it is commercially exploitable, and then they release the soundtrack. That's a good point, yeah. Where does the soundtrack market as such really take off, Gergai? I mean, where in terms of sales and people actually really seeking out to, to have that on their shelf at home, where does it where does it really start to, to take off? Uh, well, first of all, um, you, we have to divide the British and the American market a bit. Um, the first the first official commercially released soundtrack was 1942's The Jungle Book by Miklos Roja. And, uh, but it, it was like a very early example because it wasn't immediately followed by many, many other titles. In the night, even in the 1950s, only the biggest Hollywood blockbusters, mostly, mostly the biblical films and the historical films that had, you know, two or three hours of epic orchestral music, they got a watered down half hour long LP. 
and uh, as basically as the theme so the concept of the theme song arrived with something like uh, uh, High Noon by Dimitri Tionkin, they would start exploiting those theme songs at least in terms of releasing them as singles. Uh, the score was mm-hmm. left in the dust, but the single was was released for commercial potential. There is one more difference there is that nowadays when we think of a, a theme song, we usually associate it with one artist. Like let's say uh, my heart will go on, will Titanic, everybody will say Celine Dion, or I will always love you is always Whitney Houston. But in this era, cover songs were also important. A real hit wasn't a hit until only one version of it was on the soundtrack. Sometimes the cover versions perform better than the ones released by the studio or the ones released in the film. So uh, that was that was also a huge factor that up until the mid-1960s, it wasn't a concern that the theme song should be the recording that's in the film. As long as it had the title of the movie and it, 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 it could be used as a marketing potential, it could very well easily be a cover version. Now, this is only for theme songs and as, as soon as scores have more exploitable material like how Harry Marcini would write great dramatic scores but the but the soundtracks would always look at those little little jazz bits you know when they are at a party and it's it can be heard for like 10 seconds they put that on the album in the form of a three and a half minute recording uh, that also that's what I mentioned uh, before that the the fact that the album the soundtrack album betrays you is nothing new. It it has to lie because it has to perform and the old school music might not have that kind of commercial potential. In fact, uh, Mark Steiner's uh, biggest hit might be not King Kong, not Gone with the Wind, but you know what I'm thinking of? A theme from Summerplay. Yep. Yeah. And even that one mm-hmm. in the Percy Faith version, not the one in the film. Yeah, that's true. So, so that's uh, that's how e- e- even the old doyen of film music, Mark Steiner, accidentally wrote a, wrote a Silver Age hit at the dawn of his career. Yeah, well, and some people actually uh, they do point to Henry Mancini as well because uh, soundtrack collectors in the 1950s was sort of a bit of a niche market, and uh, when he released the uh, music from Peter Gunn on LP in 1959, mm-hmm. it actually charted, and it charted so fast that they couldn't release the uh, score fast enough to even design a nice cover and stuff. So it has this really weird generic cover that studios used to just, they had a collection of these things. If they had to put something out immediately, they just put it on and it didn't reflect anything. It could be anything in there. And that's what the Peter Gunn soundtrack has on it because it got so popular. They didn't even know what to do to get the amount of units out that people wanted to buy. And from that point on, 1959, 1960, you started coincidentally or not, to get people like Henry Mancini and John Barry and Michelle Legrand and people who could write scores but also could write hit songs. And suddenly that was something that you could have the best of both worlds because you could have a really effective score. (laughs) You could have somebody who wrote something melodic and certain people like Bernard Herrmann got into uh, a bit of conflict because they weren't necessarily pop songwriters, but there was stress on them to be able to produce the same sort of hybrid of popularity and a great score. The pop industry was more than happy to have singles that could promote the movie at the same time 
as work in the movie and, and the rest of it. There's one thing, I'll, two points I want to make. Um, the first one is going to be really important, I think, going forward in terms of the soundtracks, looking at the James Bond ones in particular going in this early period, is that we have to sort of remember that these soundtracks and and the reason that things were chosen for them is that they were limited by time, weren't they, Gurgle? I mean, you've only got a limited amount of time that you can squeeze onto a, an LP, and that's going to affect what's released on these, isn't I it? I mean, you usually have about 30 minutes for an You know, you, it has to be at least 30 minutes so they could uh, claim it's an LP. Out of the original James Bond LPs, I think The Man with the Golden Gun was maybe the only one which significantly stood up and had 45 minutes of material in it. But but uh, otherwise, as long as 30 minutes was ready, it was done. And, you know, in, in terms of Dr. No, uh, even in the 30 minutes, we have very little music that is actually in the film. And it, it has to be filled with something because they cannot use either. either and, you know, I'm, I'm not sure either because they didn't have the tapes or they decided not to use it in any way. But they just have to use the Jamaican stuff. Well, I was. This is my second point. I was going to actually raise that. It's just occurred to me as we were sort of sitting here and chatting about it, and I wonder whether you, we know uh, from talking about this last week. And, and Gergai, you'll probably be uh, a little more or more aware. But these these tracks that were recorded, the ones that were orchestrated in London by Burt Rose, they are they weren't recorded set to the film. They were recorded separately. Uh, you were saying last week, and so. It, and it came down to the to Peter Hunt, the editor, to basically butcher up what was recorded and make it fit with the film. So consequently, I mean, you can hear some horrendous edits within these cues that are used. I mean, you can really hear them, obviously, um, snipped together. So they then sort of faced a, 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 an issue, I guess, if they were going to release that on the soundtrack, is that do they do they go back and find the original versions and release those on the soundtrack, or do they release the snipped down, you know, really badly edited... I mean, I'd say really badly edited. They, they function within the film, but if you listen to them in isolation on a soundtrack, they're going to sound quite, you know, chopped up. Well, well obviously the chopped up stuff would, would never be used in any, any kind of soundtrack fashion. Even today... In today's soundtrack market, when you have uh, we, uh, when we release soundtracks, we always release the artist's original take, and many of those are. There, there is no film score which doesn't cut the music in some way. And unless it's a really specific archival release which goes into details, such horrendous edits are never made public because that's not... That, this is kind of respect to the artist. Um, with, the, with the Doctor No film, keep in mind that Part of it was still being edited, and you can tell some some telling examples where you can hear edits. There is the the, the tarantula music when the professor then gets the tarantula. They just play the same music that will play a scene later, and they just literally mm, cut it yes. and just cut the James Bond theme. Tonight. The other one is the killing the god, and you have this lubed material, the one that Jason. Can I have more of that, Jason? The, 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 the little monster stuff. The ti 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 ti. That one. Can I have some of that? Yeah. That. Yeah. 
So they, they just cut it as long as it's needed to be. Literally old school cut and paste. Keep in mind that the, this guard sequence was very controversial because it's very bloody. And I think even they didn't know what, what, what the final, final edit would look like. Because how much can you show? How much can you show in different markets? Because it is, it is, you can see blood in the current version. Um, but there you can see lots of horrendous edits. So it was kind of uh, expected that the music should be easy to cut in any way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something we really need to highlight for people that won't be aware of it. I mean, I just in our little conversations with you, Gergai, I wasn't even aware of things like, I know you sent me one little um, description of one cue from You Only Live Twice. I think it was the... the fight at Kobeda. It was, and the amount of edits in there. I mean, it's it's a different piece to what John Barry wrote. And I mean, we won't dive into that too much now because we'll save that for that you know, for that particular episode. But I think that's something that, that people are just going to have to kind of get their head around because certainly I was surprised. I, I'm, I'm not someone that's done the compositional work that you have, Jason, but, you know, is, is it really as bad as that? I mean, you write something and then you record it and then it basically you hand over, you turn that work in and they're going to do what they're going to do with it and you have no say in it. And that could be anything from completely switching everything around as was happens with the James Bond theme. You know, we never get it in the version it was recorded in, uh, in no. the film. What's it like as a composer to, to have that happen to you? Is it something that you've experienced a lot of? Oh yeah, completely. But another interesting thing about Dr. No in, in context with that is it was far more common back in the day to actually get somewhat of a locked picture to actually score. So usually you yes, got a picture yeah. that was actually not going to have scenes that jump from one end of the film to the other, or they weren't going to you know, take 10 minutes out of the middle of a film after you had spent three weeks working on a huge action sequence or something like that. But now we have the wonderful world of, of what is called nonlinear editing. So, you know, anything like Pro Tools or Avid that allows you to just move anything around right up until the very last second. So that means that anything you write can constantly be messed around with. Dr. No and, and Peter Hunt's work uh, in general, like it's it, uh, from Russia with Love as well. I think there's a, there's a documentary on... Uh, one of the re-releases of the film on DVD that goes into the amount of editing that took place in From Russia would love to get the form of the film where they wanted it to be. This is something that actually wasn't com as common in the early 1960s. Most films probably would have arrived in the composer's office somewhat finished, and then on that basis, the music would get written, whereas it does seem like Peter Hunt was treating Dr. No in a more modern way where things were just coming together. And as they were, the music had to be, uh, you know, massaged, shall we say, to fit where it ended up, you know, ultimately being. But today, uh, you deliver on many stems. So like the bass frequencies will kind of be separated out and, and rhythmic uh, elements will be on a separate uh, stem and, and you'll go really, really deep. Sometimes you can go dozens of stems deep. So when somebody who is uh, sympathetic to the, uh, you know, filmgoers experience goes to cut the music, they can do it in a much more subtle way that you wouldn't notice. Whereas back then when scores were often recorded mono, when you did a chop, it was a proper chop. You could hear it, couldn't you? You can't get away from the fact that it's been well documented that various people from the editor, director and producers weren't 
100% convinced or sold on this on what Monty Norman was turning in and you know it seems to me like they were in a lot of ways just trying to make the best of what they had from the various sessions I mean that's probably why we ended up getting the James Bond theme as much as we do is because they just what else they had from Monty Norman didn't work in the way they wanted it to uh, one thing I want to add is that nowadays a music editor and the film editor are completely separate people and music editors can play around with the music and you know they can even kind of mix it take out certain things if it doesn't work and Peter Hunt was a picture editor and he edited music like uh, like picture it has no musical continuity he chops melodies in half he uh, he doesn't really care about it in that respect and another thing that that he did point out when you know his edits in order to create a better flow of the film many of the films had continuity problems you know he would flip the image he would you know project somebody against uh, herself uh, in the film and you know his philosophy was you're only going to see it once you know, maybe twice if you're a big fan. And no, nobody foresaw the fact that there would be home video releases and people would pour over those movies like we do now. Uh, they just wanted a quick, efficient job. And especially, uh, I, I would even add that today, some of the DVDs, the, when they did the DVDs, the, the big case after the end of the day, they did smoothen out some really horrendous cuts in those mixes. Uh, the end credits of Goldfinger was horribly cut, which was removed for the end credits, for instance, in that film. But most of the ones in, in, within the films, they are still there, and you can enjoy them if you want. Well, gents, we've rattled on there for a good hour, and we've gone right off the beaten track at times, but it was really, uh, really interesting. I, I really enjoyed hearing different angles to it, you know, the sort of scholar um, side from you, Gergai, and the... And, and the compositional angle from yourself, Jason. Um, but, you know, hopefully everybody listening has, has enjoyed it today. And we're going to come back, I think, with another episode to sort of finish off and wrap up some of the bits we haven't talked about from the score before we go on to the, to the Bond theme. But thanks very much, gents, for your time tonight. And like I said at the start, anybody listening, please do. If you've enjoyed it, please pass it on, pass the pod, see if we can get some more people listening. And we'll be back for another episode of Scorey Time next time. Cheers, guys. Cheers. See you soon. Cheers. Cheers.